All right, so our third week of looking at church membership. Um, chapter 3 of the book is What is a Church? What is a Church Member? Just by way of review really quick, the first chapter is We've Been Approaching It All Wrong, which is, sorry, there are handouts on the table in the lobby. If you need one, raise your hand and uh, we'll get one to you. You guys don't mind grabbing a few for, thank you, appreciate it. So chapter one was we've been approaching it all wrong, the idea of we tend to think of church like Costco or, or like the YMCA or like, uh, like a family reunion, and there's a degree to which there are some parallels, but the illustration that he uses is it's better to think of it as an embassy of God's future kingdom in which we have opportunity both to be evaluated and to evaluate others, but collectively, not individually. So um, just like an embassy recognizes the legitimacy of citizenship for its members, so too the church evaluates the profession of faith for those who come to be a part of that church. And as each new member is added, then they in turn help to evaluate the profession of faith for those who come afterward. And again, this is not intended to be a malicious kind of a thing where we look at the way that someone is living, and our goal is to catch them in something wrong so we can sort of one-up them or get them out of the group. Or, that's not the goal. The goal is there needs to be something a little bit more involved than just, I say I'm a Christian. Great, you're a Christian. Okay. But what does that look like? How do we live that out in daily life? How do we help keep each other, keep, how can we help each other continue to press on? And that's where some of the things like our membership uh, commitments come in. The second chapter was about membership sightings in the New Testament, and it's definitely true that we don't see formal membership as in, here's a database, here's a piece of paper, here's a church secretary keeping track of all these kinds of things, but there is, at the very least and very clearly, an awareness of who is part of the church and who is not, and the pro there's a process of being recognized as part of the church. There's belief, there's baptism, there's uh, adherence to the apostles' doctrine, there's regular fellowship, there's caring for one another's needs. All of these things are aspects of what we today would describe as church membership, even if the exact way that works out from church to church looks a little different, the principle of people belonging and being aware of one another and ministering to each other continues to be important, which then leads us to definitions. And that's where so many of these discussions get difficult, because it's easy to say, yeah, well, we agree about all that, so then what specifically does that mean? So, first question, what's the difference between two Christians who belong to the same church and two Christians who belong to different churches? Yes, Jonathan. Okay. So, we are... Um, we're closer to Jesus if we're in the same church? No. I know that's not what you're saying, but I'm just asking that question because someone might, might think that. What, when, when you say bond, like, what do you mean? Okay. Okay. So maybe the difference between a brother or sister who lives nearby and a fourth cousin that you see every five years, right? Maybe something like that? Okay. 
Because we're still family, right? So the nature of the relationship is not different in that sense. We can, I mean, we could go to Brazil and have fellowship with the Jewels, right? And they're still part of the church. But because we don't have that regular contact, because there is a difference in geography, all those sorts of things, the nature of the bond is different, at least subjectively, right? Okay? What else? Similarities or differences between Christians in other churches and Christians in your church? Yes, Rob. Okay. So, uh, give me an example if, if one comes to mind. Okay. So let's talk about the interpretation of Revelation, because uh, that's a tricky book. Um, do we all agree on that here in our church? I don't know necessarily, because I haven't had a detailed conversation with every one of you about it. So that's definitely something to consider. I'm not mocking your example, Rob. I'm just saying it, it, we're working toward a definition here, and it's, it's challenging to think through it. So let's take something else, like baptism, right? Would we all agree that baptism is by immersion and for believers? I think we'd all agree that, right? Um, in a, let's say, a Congregationalist, I don't think most of them would call themselves that anymore, but or a Presbyterian church, something along those lines, baptism is not necessarily seen as being exclusively for believers, like you could baptize a child, a baby, uh, and not necessarily seen as being by immersion. I was listening to uh, a comedian the other day, and he held up a little tiny water bottle, and he said, hey, you know, I'm a Baptist, but if I was Presbyterian, we got enough to do the whole front row here, right? These are in-house jokes. We don't think that they're unbelievers, but there's a clear difference between what we believe about the nature of baptism, which at a certain level means that it would be very challenging to go start a church together, right? Yeah, Bruce. The original baptism is when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm assuming that that is the standard for our religion and for should be for other religions that they need that scripture. Yeah, so that's a whole big topic. The, probably the best book I could recommend to you guys if you want just a clear, heartfelt discussion of the subject, Adoniram Judson on the way over to Burma uh, switched from being basically a Congregationalist to being a Baptist as he's reading through the New Testament, writes a letter to the church that sent him out and says, hey, I know you guys don't agree on this point, so you can't support me anymore. Writes a letter to Baptist church and says, hey, I hope by the time I get to the field, you guys will take me on for support. So the fact that he was willing to make that change because he became convinced of something from Scripture, I think lends weight to what he's saying. It's not just like a theoretical, oh, here's you know three guys in Bible college having an argument about something. He actually meant it, he knew the repercussions of it, and he lays out just very simply, here's what the Bible says about it. So if you want, that's a really good book. It's fairly short. Um, you can probably find it for free online, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so baptism would be an example. Um, what if we take about something like Jesus is the Son of God? Theoretically, anyone who is genuinely has a relationship, not theoretically, anyone who genuinely has a relationship with Jesus Christ and the way the Bible describes 
has to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And so if someone says, I don't believe that, then the dividing line is not us and a Christian in another church, it's us and this person doesn't know God at all, right? So if we were going to talk about degrees of importance of biblical doctrine, and it's difficult to say that because all biblical doctrine is important, Jesus is the Son of God is clearly of first level importance, right? Uh, Paul talks about, I deliver to you as of first importance, truths about the gospel, right? Then there are things that are, tend to be distinctives of churches like baptism. And then there are issues about interpretation of other things, right? So, um, for example, if someone said, I believe that speaking in tongues is for today, that's an interpretation about a Bible passage that is different. It can be also distinctive of a church. And this gets difficult too. If someone says, you have to speak in tongues to be saved, then that almost goes all the way up to that first level, right? Because then they're adding something to what the Bible requires. If someone says, you need to speak in tongues to be a member of our church, well, then we're at the church distinctive level. If someone says, I think when it says the perfect comes, that's talking about something yet future in 1 Corinthians 13, that's a third level interpretation of a passage kind of a discussion. So how does this all tie into two Christians who belong to different churches? It's not always immediately clear which of these issues that we're talking about. And um, we, need to consider, um, we need to consider what things are really important to say this person is not even a believer, this person is a brother or sister in Christ, but we can have fellowship outside of church, but we probably can't go start a church together and then uh, a degree of, we have a difference of opinion on this one specific passage, but we can all be part of the same church, right? And so, which of those things is going on is like from the doctrinal perspective, where this, how we would try to answer this question. Um, but there's also practical considerations. It's not just about belief. But there are practical considerations. What are some of the practical considerations with regard to differences between people in one church versus another, and people in the same church. Evan? Okay. Um, I guess I'm getting to the idea of what's our degree of responsibility to people in our church versus another church. I would agree with you for the most part. So if I go see my friend Jeff, who's a pastor at a church out in Commerce Township, do I have a responsibility to edify him if we meet up for lunch? Okay? So the line has to be something different than just do we have a responsibility to edify, because we should have a responsibility to edify any other believer that we come across. I'm just pointing out this is challenging. I'm not... Jonathan.
Yes, that's what we're getting at. That's, I think, where the author is going, and I think that that is where it comes down to probably one. There may be a couple others, but that's probably the primary distinction. So when we were at, in Lansing uh, on Wednesday, the Senate passed a resolution about what they thought that college campuses should do about people wearing masks or not, right? But it's a resolution. So here's the issue of a resolution. Is a resolution a law? No, it's a, it's a position statement. It's kind of like if a city council censures someone because they misbehave, that person isn't necessarily kicked off city council. It's just kind of like a slap on the wrist. We don't like you. You did something that we disapprove of. Whereas an actual law has weight behind it, and you can follow through on it, and there can be actual real consequences. Okay, So to what Jonathan was saying, Someone who is in the same local church, there is a possibility of formal church discipline. There is not, I mean, if, if we say there's some crazy guy out in Arizona or somewhere just, just says all kinds of off-the-wall things that when I was in college, we'd see some of his videos pop up and, and all this kind of thing, and we'd look at it and we'd say, okay, yeah, he's doing crazy things. Do I have much of a responsibility to try to fix this? Um, even if I want to, it's not going to probably make a whole lot of difference if I say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this. He doesn't know me. I have no authority over him, all those sorts of things. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be a degree of rebuke, because we see that some in the New Testament. But it means that geography and, and being in the same church body uh, is a very different sort of a thing than some guy 500 or 1,000 miles away. So let me just read this for you. You could say that all three of us belong to the body of Christ and the people of God and the universal church. True. Furthermore, all three of us, he's saying me and these two friends who are from other churches, are called to love each other, pray for each other, encourage each other, rebuke sin in each other, and even care for each other financially as occasion requires. And so if we set any one of those things as our definition of what the difference is, we probably go beyond what the New Testament shows because we see churches giving money to other churches and individuals. We see people from various churches rebuking each other. We see people from various churches edifying each other. What's the difference? If there's no difference, we'd have to say the local church does not exist. It would be like saying there's no difference between my relationship with my wife and my relationship with other women. That would be true only if the marital covenant did not exist. But it does exist, so there's a big difference in the relationships. Likewise, the local church does exist, and so it seems as if there should be some difference in those relationships. What is it? Here's a hint. My church and I are capable of exercising formal church discipline over Coyle, a man in his church, but not over Mike, a man not in his church. Understanding what this role is requires us to ask what the local church is and its members are. And he says there is at least two ways for us to answer the question of what a local church is. We can look at the question organically or institutionally. To understand the difference, think of the marriage analogy. If we were to talk about a marriage organically, we'd talk about the wonderful things a married couple gets to do. Live together, make a home together, engage in marital intimacy, have children, share confidences, and so forth. These are the activities we associate with the marital relationship. To talk about a marriage institutionally, however, is to talk about the stuff that our culture understands less and less and is starting to leave behind. He's talking more about the commitments and the core of what the relationship is. Uh, so he says a little bit later, Consider the illustration of marriage. Rules and activities have been ordained by God, bone and flesh, and so it is with a local church. Then he gives this definition. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Uh, 
that's kind of a long definition. It's not as long as our church commitments, but it's getting at some similar ideas. Then he says a little bit later, Jesus talks about the kingdom. Paul talked about the church. All right, so let's talk about these things. Would we agree that both rules and activities for the church have been ordained by God? Like the, the core of the relationship and also what that then means for what we're supposed to do as members. Yes, okay. Um, then any thoughts about the definition? Is this a, a group of Christians who gather in Christ's name to affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and His kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances? Could we say a lot more? Probably. But is that a good starting place for a definition of what the church is? Probably. Okay, so um, what about this distinction between Jesus and, and, and Paul? Does Jesus talk more about the kingdom than about the church? True, but he does mention it. So if we're talking number of times Jesus talked about God's kingdom versus God's church, we'd have to say Jesus talked a lot more about the kingdom than the church, right? Um, so Jesus is, in a sense, laying the groundwork for because God's kingdom is coming, here's how he's working in the world today through the church, something along those lines. And Paul, when he comes along, is explaining all of this, so here's what the church looks like in day-to-day -day life. Okay? Um, but then we have the question of Israel. Because wasn't Israel supposed to do in the Old Testament times largely what the church is supposed to do today? In terms of what they were supposed to proclaim about God and in terms of the fact that they were supposed to point the nations around them to God. Yes. Did Israel live up to that purpose? Mostly not, okay? So... Um, if we look at that, then we have a challenge because this is the way that he describes it, and we can talk more about this. I don't know if I put all of this exactly this way. He said, God was firing Israel. They were losing their job of representing him. What do we think about that? I think temporarily is where, because the Romans... 9 through like 13 kind of would point to this idea that God has not forgotten Israel, but he sets them aside for a time as far as being the primary group through whom he's working. Okay? All right, second thing he says, Jesus was the one who would now represent the Heavenly Father. He was, in fact, God and the perfect image of God. Would we agree with that? Jesus is now representing God instead of Israel representing God as being the primary picture of what God is like. I, I, if I was going to word it, I would probably word it something like, Jesus perfectly fulfills all that the people before him failed to do. And because he represents God perfectly, we now have this, this, this perfect picture, whereas before we had like Hezekiah or David or people who mostly did followed after God, but had pretty serious sin issues and didn't do it well at a lot of points in their lives, right? And so there's all these imperfect representatives, and then Jesus comes along, and he's the perfect one that shows us what God is like. And we'd say, yeah, I think that's true from, from what the Bible lays out. Then he says, the thirdly, God was establishing a kingdom, not as a place like Israel, but as his rule over a particular set of people. And this kingdom was for people who were repentant, poor in spirit, and humble like children. Now, 
This is where it gets tricky because the question of whether the kingdom is now or later or somewhat now, somewhat later, is it something that's laid out in what we would call the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount for now? Is that a description of people in the church? Is that a description of people in God's future kingdom? There's all of these questions associated with the kingdom that we can't really cover in five minutes right now. Having said that, is there still this idea that God is establishing a kingdom? I think we'd at least say that, right? Um, Is the kingdom primarily, and this is again, I think, where your understanding of all these things, and this is where your interpretation of Revelation and of the New Testament and of some of God's promises in the Old Testament starts to impact the degree to which you can work alongside someone, because if you're convinced that God's kingdom is, so this is the post-millennial view, God's kingdom is brought in through the preaching of the gospel in society today. That's going to look different than if you say there is no actual kingdom today. It's just the fact of God reigning in our hearts, which is the Ben-Hur kind of idea of the kingdom, if you will, right? Um, Or if you say God has a future kingdom that's going to come down the line, so it is a real and actual thing in a real and actual place with real and actual people, but Jesus has the right to rule today, and so our allegiance is to him, and we're looking to that future kingdom, depending of which of those views of the kingdom that you have is going to impact somewhat how you do church and all the things associated with church. So more or less emphasis on things like clean water, soup kitchens, feeding the poor, or helping the poor, versus proclaiming the gospel, versus trying to transform society politically, versus like all of these things. Like it impacts what you do. But the idea that Jesus is coming to establish a kingdom, I think we would say yes. I think the New Testament lays that out. Um, So then the fourth thing is, the citizens of his kingdom, whom he would purchase through his death on the cross, would join him in representing God on earth. So, would we agree that if Jesus came to represent God, and he's establishing a future kingdom, and he calls us into that kingdom, then we have a responsibility to represent God to other people? I think those things all follow one after each other, right? And I think they're all true biblically. So then that sort of leads us to what's unique about the local church's responsibility is the representing God in a particular time and place, not just like America, but Royal Oak, or where you happen to be as a church member in your day-to-day activities, okay? So let's talk a little bit more about what representing God looks like. So, um, a few pages later, well, he gives this illustration of the White House press room. Um, You can't just say, hey, I'm representing the president, and start talking on behalf of the president, just some random person in the room, right? You have to be appointed to that task. And then he says, it's just as presumptuous to assume that you have the authority to represent King Jesus, the divine son, as it is to to assume you have the authority to represent the president of the United States. In fact, more so. Someone has to authorize you. And so we go to the right-hand column on your page there. How does this authorization to represent Jesus take place? He says, Jesus gave Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom, which gave Peter the authority to do what Jesus had just done with him, to act as God's official representative on earth for affirming true gospel confessions and confessors. And then he says also, the apostles had had heaven's authority for declaring who on earth is a kingdom citizen and therefore represents heaven. 
So let's turn over to Matthew 16. This is an important passage on this. Can I get someone to read Matthew 16, 13 to 20? Who would like to do that for us? Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Go ahead, Norma. Thank you. Uh, 13 through 20. Okay. And then can someone read Matthew 18, 15 through 20? Jonathan, go ahead. Right. So, um, first important question from Matthew 16, when Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church, what is he referring to? Peter's words, Peter himself, or both? Okay. Any, any thoughts about... Are there any other verses that would lend support to the idea that it's both? Or just one of the two? Let me rephrase that. What other verses would lend support to? What's that?
does that say, Norma? Okay. All right. You said John 1. Okay. Almost there. All right. So, yeah. So, your assignment, the son of John, you should be called Peter. Okay. So, that's the idea of his name being the rock. Okay. Um, what about where it talks in Ephesians about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets? That would lend support to the idea that Peter and the other apostles have some measure of responsibility in the building of the early church and some degree of being a foundation for it, right? But then there's also the things that Paul says about holding fast to the Word of God and the teaching of the apostles as being the pillar and ground of the, tr of the truth, which would then lend support to the idea that it is the gospel message and the apostolic teaching that is the foundation for the church, right? So, both are true. Uh, and I think Jesus leaves it vague there primarily because both are true. Now, the Roman Catholic Church says makes a big deal about the idea of Peter being the foundation, and so then the, all the false ideas about the papacy. Um, and I think in a reaction to that, sometimes we've tried to say, well, Peter and the other apostles had no role whatsoever, and that's not true biblically either. And so we've got to say exactly what the text says. So the foundation of the church is the apostles themselves, and the gospel message that they proclaim, okay? In close connection with them and the message being what God is using to build the church is the accompanying authority. Do we see this idea of God's authority going with them in the task anywhere else in the Bible? It's a really famous passage you might have heard of at the end of Matthew. Yeah, the Great Commission, right? And so Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I'm with you, which then implies what? Jesus' authority goes with us in the task of making disciples and building the church. And that's specifically and primarily directed to the disciples, the apostles at first, right? So, there is a task, there is a building of the church, there is an accompanying authority that's described further here as the keys of the kingdom. And the really interesting thing to me about this is when I was reading Isaiah 22, there's this extended aside where there's a transfer of authority from one person in Hezekiah's household to another. And what does it say? I will give him the key of David, and what he opens and closes will be opened or closed, which is exactly the same sort of phrasing here. So there, the reason that the steward in Isaiah 22 has the opportunity to open and close, and then it's opened or closed, or the authority to represent the king is because the king has appointed him. That's the point that we're supposed to take away from this passage. If Jesus has appointed people to be a part of his church, then there is an accompanying authority for the church with regard to things like recognition of who's in and who's out. And there's even some tie-in to the idea of forgiveness of sins, given the context of Matthew 18. But um, if we were going to just say it really simply, the idea of church discipline is connected to Jesus appointed people to a task, gave them a company and authority, and then said, all right, now you need to affirm or deny the profession of faith of different people, all those sorts of things. So, all that to say, do you and I represent Jesus today? Yes. 
in the sense that we are connected with the building of the church that he began to establish with the apostles and has continued to this point. Um, another really quick aside. Sometimes because of an American individualism and sometimes because of an overreaction to false views of the church when it comes to like the Roman Catholic idea that like the church is your mother and the most important thing and everything comes through the church, we've tried to act like the church is not important. And it is important, and particularly when it comes to church discipline, it's essential, because you and I can't just go around saying, you're part of the church, you're not part of the church, you're part of the church, you're not part of the church. That has to be a collective assessment and affirmation or denial by the assembly as a whole. You can't just say, so-and-so is out of membership because we don't like him, or they did this thing this one time. That has to be an agreement of the whole body on clear biblical grounds of there being some sort of unrepentant sin issue with, I would add, the goal of restoration, because the goal is not just to get someone out, but to get them right with God. So, this then leads to what he says next. Church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. So, why is church membership some degree of formal commitment then important versus faithfully attending for an indefinite period. Okay, Devin? Sure. And this gets difficult because I think there's a sense in which someone can be completely committed to the church but there, I think, and I don't think we should do things just because of people's opinions about them, but it's potentially, um, because people just have this sort of free-floating attitude toward church, I'll go here until I find something I don't like, and that kind of thing, then we get into the difficulty of, is the commitment serious, right? So in the context, going back to his illustration of marriage, Two people can be dating, and they can be very committed to each other, but until there's a, and yes, we're for sure going to get married and, engage, and we're engaged, and now we're moving toward marriage, there's always that question mark in people's minds about how real the commitment is. Should there be? Maybe, maybe not, but there is, right? And so that is the, there's parallels to what we're talking about here. You could have someone who comes to church for like 10 years and is involved as much as they can be according to what the church allows with regard to someone who's not a member, and, and there's always going to be a little bit of a question mark, I think, of is this person really committed? And, you know, the longer that that goes on, the less of a question mark that there should be. But I think it's just clearer and more helpful if there is a recognized process that ends in these people are part of our church 
and these people are not part of our church, these people are under the authority of the church, these people maybe will be down the road, but aren't really in the same way right now. There's a whole bunch of, and this is not, again, not the main reason to do it too, but there's a whole bunch of things like legally and liability-wise and all of that that also are connected with it in terms of just the horrific reality of types of abuse that have happened in connection with the church. Um, people saying, oh, I was promised this position, but then I left, and or, or, or there was this disagreement, and then they took it away from me or whatever because I didn't agree with their doctrine. So, I mean, that should never be the main reason. We're trying to cover ourselves from lawsuits, or we're just trying to make sure no one can come after us if some bad thing happens. But without the degree of accountability, it's difficult to have someone who's just attended for six months come to them and say, hey, we're going to do a background check on you so you can serve in the nursery. Why? Well, because we think it's really important to protect our kids. Well, okay, but I'm, you know, I just go here. You know, again, it's just, there's all of these things that are kind of wrapped up together that there's no command that says you have to become a member in the exact way that our church does it. But I think there's a lot of wisdom in a clearly defined approach that says here's what it looks like. Here's how you become a part of it. Here's what happens afterward. One of my burdens has been when it comes to things like our church commitments that it wouldn't just be something that we file away either, right? Because that's far too easy for all of us to do. Yeah, I should read my Bible, but I mean, I know that's in the church covenant, church commitment somewhere, but okay, whatever. Nobody's ever going to check up on me, so whatever. Now, we shouldn't have that attitude, but it's easy to fall into that pattern through laziness and the fact that there's no degree of accountability. So, why do we read through the church commitments three or four times a year? Why do we read through the statement of faith three or four times a year? So that we are regularly reminded of the things that we've said that we believe and the things that we've said that we'll do so that there is a higher degree of likelihood that we're actually believing and doing them. And when it comes down to it, I'm less concerned about the process, although we do have a process that we should follow because we've said that's what it is, and more about that, that we have these commitments, that we have these beliefs, that they are real for us and not just some document stuck away in a file drawer somewhere or thrown in the trash because we forgot about it. So why is church membership important? Because of all those things that we just talked about. He says, church membership is all about a church taking specific responsibility for you and you for a church. So if another church says, we're not going to have an official membership role, but there has to be this point at which you say, I'm committed to this church, and the church is committed to you, fine. You don't have to have a specific list somewhere. I do think the larger the group and the more people from diverse backgrounds in the church, it becomes really important for sake of organization and consistency to have some kind of record, right? But that part is not mandated by Scripture. What is mandated is, I'm taking responsibility for your soul as your pastor, you're taking responsibility for one another's souls as members of the same body, and all of us recognize that there's a degree that this is a sacred responsibility before God. And that's where it goes way beyond like the membership at a Costco kind of idea, right? Because that's like, eh, they stopped carrying this brand that I like, so I'm not going to renew my membership next year. Or, you know, whatever else. That's where it goes way beyond, we just hang out together because we enjoy each other's company, because then, as soon as you stop enjoying each other's company, what happens? You stop showing up to whatever the group is. 
And that's where, you know, these ideas of citizenship and marriage and all these kinds of illustrations, I think, take a lot more weight and, and really illustrate a little bit better the seriousness of what we see in Matthew 16 and 18. He says, it's true that a Christian must join, choose to join a church, but that does not make it a voluntary organization. And I'm like, wait a minute, but you chose to join it, so if you got in, you can get out. But, again, go back to the illustration of marriage. Should you freely choose to marry the person that you marry? In our society, we have the option to do that. When there was arranged marriages and all that, maybe not, right? But in our society, we have the, we have the opportunity to voluntarily enter into the relationship. Having entered into the relationship, can you just say, eh, I changed my mind? No. This is not a three-day grace period on buying a used car in some states. This is not a whatever that's just a light commitment. This is a for better, for worse, for richer or poorer, for life or death, until death do us part. That's the nature of the commitment. And when we think about our commitment to the church with that degree of soberness, I think we start to capture the sense in which you have people in the early church, for example, in the book of Hebrews, who say, so-and-so is a prisoner. If I go visit him, I may end up in jail too. Why would you go do it? Because there's that level of commitment. And, and I think that's the important thing that we need to get at with regard to um, all of these things. And so he says this, Having chosen Christ, a Christian has no choice but to choose a church to join. Again, that's going to look different from church to church, but there needs to be that core element of commitment to one another, oversight by the leadership of the church, ultimate allegiance to Jesus and his authority. Any quick thoughts or, or questions as we wrap up here? What do you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something we could talk about further, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a serious thing, so, yeah. Any, any other thoughts? All right, let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths together. Um, help us to be honest about what your word does and does not say. Help us to be clear on the importance of the commitment that we have entered into as members of a local body of believers. And then help us, Lord, I pray, to live those things out, not just to say, oh, we've done this, and that was something we did, and so now we're all set, but then to say, all right, so what does that mean for our day-to-day -day lives, and then to follow you faithfully. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.